This is a recording of the session at Ideas for Freedom 2019 on an introduction to Andreas Malm's fossil capital, the rise of steam power and the roots of global warming. This session will introduce participants to socialist writer Andreas Malm's book on fossil fuels and discuss how it can help activists develop an anti-capitalist working class environmentalism. You'll hear from speaker Zach Merrill Dowson, plus his response to the discussion from the floor. Alright, comrades, uh, I'm Josh, a member of Works Liberty, and I'm glad to be introducing Zach, who is a delivery worker down in Bristol, and who will be talking to us about uh, Fossil Capital, which is Andreas Malm's book, and how it can influence what us revolutionary socialists are doing to fight against climate change. So, in the period between uh, 1751, like early in the Industrial Revolution, and 2010, the amount of carbon emitted in that period, if you, if you then take 1986, which was the, when the first IPCC report came out, half of the carbon emitted in that total period was emitted between 1986 and 2010. So I'm assuming everyone here knows about the kind of devastating kind of effects that climate change will, uh, you know, it, it, if it continues, will have on our climate. But um, kind of Within that, within that statistic, you can see um, something quite absurd um, in the you know the time when we've known most about you know the science of global warming and it's most severe is a time in which we've been increasing the um, you know the amount of fossil fuel uh, the amount of carbon dioxide emitted into the atmosphere um, and this is like. We, we can think about, people talk about this certain thresholds, two degrees threshold or, or, or whatever. And, and, you know, along with that, you have, have this threshold of, uh, you know, the, the amount of um, greenhouse gases to, to be that you need to keep the, you know, the below a certain proportion of parts per million um, to you know, keep within those thresholds and to to limit runaway effects and so on. Um, so any net emissions take us close in that direction. They kind of squander our um, our greenhouse gas budget, if you if you like to say. So even if we had constant emissions, like that'd be bad. But the rate of emissions is increasing, um, and and is in fact increasing at an increasing wet rate. So you can you can tell from that that you know we're clearly in, in a serious mess, um, especially coupled by the fact that the technology exists to you know that we'll be able to resolve this. Um, we could power using existing technology. You know we could replace all common power with um, renewable energy. So. Fossil capital is what I'm, I'm talking about. Um, it's got quite a bold name in that it's a bit of a throwback to um, capital by Marx. Um, I think you know that's quite quite a bold move in a way, but there aren't many books in which I'd, I'd say you know I think it kind of has gone a serious way to kind of pulling that off. Um, you know, Marx's capital. Um, you know, digs down into the kind of deep inner workings and cell structure of kind of, of capital 
and in doing, doing so helps you know, revolutionary socialists understand the driving forces of the world around us and kind of leads us to kind of radical conclusions of, of how to confront it and you know it's for good reason that like I think I'd, I'd advocate that you know anyone that's serious about everything capitalism should read Marx's Capital I think I'd say similar for fossil capital effect you know anyone interested in uh, stopping climate change so the main thing I'm trying to do in this talk is is give you a bit of a flavour of it um, I can't do justice to it um, without uh, yeah in the time given because apparently I can't stay here till midnight so um, you'll be sorry to hear um, but the, yeah the main thing is you should all read this um, so yeah I've kind of opened with with, with this problem um, that we have um, not, not only of increasing carbon emissions but constructing more and more um, infrastructure which um, kind of economically within the common kind of paradigms uh, locks us into a, a path dependency towards like the, you know, the destruction of civilization as we know it and all of that um, so the kind of object of study here is, is what he calls the fossil economy um, and how he defines the fossil economy is an economy in which there is it's an economy of self-sustaining growth uh, which is predicated on the growing use of fossil fuels um, and thereby producing carbon dioxide. Um, so he, he he makes an important point that the kind of fossil economy is a is a totality that you look at as a whole. Petrol in itself or a car in itself doesn't cause pollution. Like the what you have in a fossil economy is a co complex set of social interrelation interrelate interrelations which kind of facilitate the combustion of fossil fuels towards further ends. You know, you have all the process by which fossil fuels get made available and the tools to consume them are made available and, and through this kind of social reality um, carbon dioxide is emitted. So the, the point in studying this is to kind of he, he uses a metaphor which I found quite poignant that you know we're on like a, a train which is driving towards a cliff edge and not only is it going towards the cliff edge but it's increasing and it's constantly increasing and we want to understand why it's doing that and we hope that by understanding that we can uh, we can challenge it we can stop it um, and the other, the other part of that is that, that you know maybe there'll be some clues in the transition from uh, before there was a fossil economy into the fossil economy, maybe so there'll be some clues from that into the reverse. Um, so the and and okay, um, so his his kind of key claim throughout. Um, and which I kind of explore the component parts of is that kind of fossil fuels were were basically brought in as to wield social power um, against the um, against the working class 
and um, Yeah, he kind of doing a survey of the of the kind of field before him. Um, he he kind of shows that that the kind of that all the, all of the existing theories kind of fail to adequately explain. Um, he demonstrates conclusively that that that, that like pre previous attempts to explain this um, using kind of different explanations. Are, uh, are false, or they're seriously wrong, and many of them are completely ahistorical and, and, and fantastical. Um, so, like one of the, the backdrops to this is so the transition to fossil, the, to the from, so he, he defines a kind of proto fossil economy, um, which Finds as it has, so the proto-fossil economy is is what existed before the fossil economy. Um, it doesn't mean it will necessarily lead into one. So there is a, but it, he he describes five features of it. One, a coal industry has developed with underground mines and regular trade. Two, coal has become the major source of heat in the domestic sphere. Three, coal has penetrated in its industry as a heat provider. Four domestic and so so those those three first things are all the things which are are also true of the fossil economy. However, four domestic consumption is predominant. So that's something which isn't what well, doesn't characterise it. it. That's not true in the fossil economy. And, and five impressive rates of growth in coal consumption are achieved during the phases of substitution without any self-sustaining economic growth being predicated on fossil fuels. So the phases of substitution he talks about is in the transition from a before a proto-fossil economy to a fossil economy, which happened in um, the region of Song in, uh, I mean, in the Song dynasty in, in China in uh, around a thousand years ago and also happened um, in the Elizabethan period in, in the UK, um, the, you got this transition from wood to coal, um, but in China that didn't go into the development of a large-scale fossil economy, because what happened is the reason in both, more or less, that the, the transition happened was um, not that there was a shortage of wood in general, but that there was a bottleneck in urban areas. Um, and coal is denser, um, denser energy-wise per unit mass. It's denser per unit. Uh, it's denser volume-wise per unit mass as well. So per unit volume, it's several factors uh, more kind of energy dense than wood, which for transportation is very important. And um, so, in both cases, it helped kind of break through a bit of an urban. Uh, bottleneck, um, but in both cases, the, there was a there was a growth in coal production until the point at which you know most domestic use and you know also like blacksmiths and other industrial things use coal instead of wood, and then it plateaued, um, and only any increases that from then would be um, increases due to population growth, and um, as he demonstrates in, in various points, 
population growth is, is not a significant driver behind um, climate change. Um, since several hundred years ago, um, uh, the po population has... Oh, no, I've forgotten what time it is. Um, I can dig out the statistic in a bit, but basically the pop population... Uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions have gone up a hundred times as fast as the population has. Um, so, um, yeah, and so, so, so what distinguishes a fossil economy is, is the fact that fossil fuel consumption is not coupled to population, but it's coupled to uh, continued economic growth and therefore continually goes up. Um, so, the, the kind of, the big question kind of posed at the beginning here then is the, the fossil fuels originally kind of came into industry and kind of um, well, well in, in, in the kind of transition for fossil economy um, that was a transition over the period of the industrial revolution um, in which that, the cotton industry was, was central uh, both the, to the industrial revolution and to this transition um, to coal and industry and coal being coupled to uh, continually economic growth. Um, but what powered cotton before that was um, was not wood, but it was mostly water, um, water power, which was uh, and also um, sometimes um, sometimes like animals, uh, you know, powering wheels and so on. Um, so the, the big puzzle here is that water was more abundant than coal. Water was considerably cheaper than coal. Um, there was no serious technological advantages at the time of the transition. Um, in fact, water was water-produced cotton was seen as higher quality because it was more regular. Um, and um, various other factors that uh, I might come back to. But basically, what, what he then dem demonstrates very conclusively throughout the book that kind of that steam was introduced because it had advantages in the for the purpose of the subordination of, of labour power, for the purpose of subordination of workers, um, and there was, you know, throughout the history then of you know what has given rise to uh, global warming, in which the fossil economy is not the only factor in global warming, right? So, like, deforestation isn't about the burning of fossil fuels and various other things. But, as he says, the, you know, the fossil economy is um, quantitatively dominant and qualitatively uh, determinative, I think. As in, it's, it kind of... It kind of qualitatively shapes the overall kind of global capitalist economy, um, and it is also in terms of the kind of net uh, contribution to global warming it is it is the the dominant factor. Um, so he looks and kind of heavily at the kind of cotton industry, but when he touches on various other industries. Um, they um, 
they often follow very similar patterns. Um, the fossil economy proper, as opposed to proto-fossil economy, as he kind of demonstrates, originated in Britain. So, you know, mo most of the kind of long, long history is, is focusing on Britain, but he again generalizes it. Um, so, um, to define some kind of terms then, um, that, that he uses, which are kind of a useful theoretical framework. So he, he wants to look at the kind of sources of energy, um, in the, that, that were, as were available at the time in the, in the powering of, um, in powering of cotton, um, construction. Um, and he, so that like this spinning of, cotton into into yarn and or you know into threads um, and then weaving a bit um, into you know, cotton sheets or whatever. Um, so he, he 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 distinguishes three sources of energy um, or three kind of what was described as prime movers. So the um, the kind of source of energy that as it comes into the factory um, in by the spatio-temporal Profiles. So he makes the case. He says, you know, you look at wind and water, um, horse and people, and and coal and you know and the like, and all of them, are, you know, ultimately derive their energy directly or indirectly from the you know the basically the nuclear reactions that are occurring inside the sun through sunlight, um, and the difference in them then is the kind of spatio-temporal profile of how that energy goes from nuclear reactions in the sun into create the, this force which is harnessed to create um, uh, cotton. And so the first three categories that he defines then is the flow, as he calls it, so that's predominantly water and wind, um, mostly in what we're considering water. He, he explains the big disadvantages of wind. Um, but that is basically its energy. You know, it comes from the sun. It goes into, you know, it causes evaporation and so on, causes a hydrological cycle, and you have this energy that caused by the falling of water, um, and both with that and the, with with the wind, it's something that's kind of it's it's free. Um, uh, in the, you know, in a sense, it's like readily available, but it kind of comes and then it goes. Um, it's not. Um, it's kind of you find it most in specific places and, and locations. It's subject to, to fluctuations over time. There's a kind of roughly constant amount available in general, but you, you, that can't be kind of it, the the general amount available can't be expanded or diminished at any particular time, the amount that you use can be. Then he talks about animate power, which is through creatures. Um, so that's either, you know, if you have like a wheel that's powered by horses, which was used at various points as like grinding a corn or whatever. Um, so that's, you know, energies come through photosynthesis, through plants, and through the animals. Or humans, so like often, like particularly earlier on, like a significant part of the kind of movement of the whatever mechanism they're using for the creative of the cotton is basically like, you know, humans doing it, they've got the skill of making it, but they're also putting in the muscular effort. Um, 
and then the third one is the stock, uh, which is from kind of photosynthesis, which is you know kind of comes all from outside of the immediate landscape and from a historic time, and so it isn't kind of immediately related to it in that sense, which is basically like fossil fuels, which get their energy again from pho- photosynthesis millions of years ago. Um, so yeah, that's a kind of a useful theoretical um, backdrop. <coughs> so to go on then to look at cotton, I thought I'd share a poem with you from the capitalists at the time, uh, showing what how they thought about cotton. This is from 1789. Oh, money! Oh, money! Money! I too plainly see that in good earnest I'm in love with thee. (laughs) So that doesn't just show that our class has better poetry. (laughs) But um, uh, there there was a kind of wide celebration of that was from a Yorkshire manufacturer um, who was getting money from uh, cotton. Um, and yes, it, it says something. Um, so, yeah, from the we're kind of looking in, at the history in more detail. Um, the poet of fossil economy came about in the in the UK several hundred years after it, it had in China um, in the kind of around the 1500s, 1560-ish. Um, huge leap in particular in London, but in, in some other places. And for heating, for cooking, and like a, a few other things, um, like in the production of iron. Um, but that then plateaued. Um, and the, the kind of... Tris- 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 uh, the transition later came um, basically through steam power, um, which um, and the reason why it, it was always coal and, and not wood that was was using steam power is, is very similar. That it's kind of energy dent- density. Um, it, it, I think it's got some some other advantages. It's um, I think. It, Probably it produces less uh, less ash, I believe, and like other things. But the main thing is its energy density for kind of transportation. Um, so, um, yeah, basically, shortly before the transition happened, um, and after, so so a lot of historians kind of date. You know, they they look at the point at which the patent, the steam engine, was patented patented as like the you know the crucial point you know this existed and from there it just dominated the economy but that's that's not true um, it was developed a significant time before it had any significant uptake um, but basically because it was significantly more expensive as well as having all the other disadvantages uh, you know you have to pay for coal and don't have to pay for like directly for water um, the um, water was as good or better um, 
And so after after the first attempts, kind of steam didn't really go anywhere. Um, so a lot of historians ask, kind of, you know, why was there such a slow uptake in steam? But I think Mom kind of says actually the better question is why was steam adopted at all? Why was this form of energy that you had to continually pay for when there was like incredibly abundant, much more efficient, like energy efficient, uh, much cheaper um, form available? Um, so. A, a, a lot of the, this transition kind of centers around the kind of crises that occurred from 1825 uh, onwards. So um, in 1825, in, there was a kind of the first genuine kind of structural crisis of capitalism, um, which is kind of st- structural in, in a financial, a structural financial crisis, because, which was caused by kind of overproduction. So basically because, you know, as we've heard from our dear friend, the poet, um, you know, there was a lot of money to be made in this area. Um, propelled by that and also by, um, you know, other, other factors to do with uh, kind of the amount of gold available, which meant that kind of lending was more, it was easier. There was like a huge very rapid expansion of kind of factories and so on being built for the production of cotton. Um, at which point there was then an overproduction. There was kind of, there was more cotton available than could be sold. Um, at which point the profits like kind of collapsed. Um, and there was a crisis and this spread to other industries. Um, I mean, this, this, this was exacerbated by the fact that there'd been, in some sense, a kind of like a bubble within the, within the kind of, uh, newly, within the cotton, cotton industry. Um, but that, that wasn't the kind of main factor. And, and the crisis basically put the pressure on, tightened the screws on, on kind of capitalists at the time. And this came, uh, like, you know, largely coincidentally at the, at the same time as a huge rise of a kind of, you know, what you might see as a kind of social crisis of capitalism. Um, in that there was, so from the end of the Napoleonic Wars, some, in 1816, um, and when there'd been an easing off of repression, there'd been increasing organization, um, amongst the working class to uh, legalize trade unions repealed what was were called the combination laws um, and they basically it, they, they achieved it in, in, in 1825 because um, capitalists were you know getting so tired of the, the kind of really militant strikes there were and which often because it was illegal to publicly do it um, they you know involved Kind of widespread destruction of of property, um, which is is in many ways kind of like, you know it's easier to get away with secretive property destruction than a public strike in a context in which striking is legal. Um, so they were hoping that they would somehow manage to put a lid on it. Uh, they were wrong. 
Uh, but by the time they realised it was wrong, they were wrong, it was too late. Um, so these factors kind of combined to create a bit of a perfect storm for the capitalists. Um, and but so before before kind of eighteen twenty five, spinning factories where 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 coal was spun. Um, we're called where cotton was spun, the kind of centre of the uh, the kind of lead of the transition to to steam and fossil, as we'll see, and, and also in the industrial revolution, um, they involved both both kind of uh, they involved external prime movers, um, mostly water, and also residual animal power in the like so they introduced machinery. But the um, machinery, um, but like part, part of the process still involved kind of muscles to push the uh, thing that moves, what's it called again? Shuttle. Yeah, push the shuttle back. Um, so, um, yeah, and there's. Uh, in the processes what by, by which uh, like uh, capitalists bought uh, you know workers from working in set places into being in one location under one roof and then kind of you know the discipline involved in that and getting to getting to the point that it was 1825 um, there's a lot to be unpicked in that he goes into it a bit in here, and Marx goes into it in capital as well. Um, uh, but basically, you end up with this point in which um, there were fa- factories in which workers um, go there, but the the kind of uh, the hands at, at, at the particular point involved in the, the spinners were um, only ten percent of workers. But if the if, if they stopped, um, then everything stopped. Um, and they were also, like, because, because of, they were kind of there, because, because of how, how they fitted into the machinery, pushing the shuttle back and also doing various kind of quite fiddly things. It was a quite highly skilled, um, trade. And it meant that they were, they had huge industrial power. Um, 10% of the workshop, Workforce that wasn't easily replaced could be could shut down the factories, um, and they did so. They often did so for kind of long periods. They forced huge wage increases at a time in which you know capital was uh, undergoing a crisis and, and losing profits independently of these these wage increases, um, and. The, you know, as as you can imagine, the uh, the capitalists, the owners of the um, the factories weren't, weren't weren't too happy with that. Um, they were, you know, both because they were losing money, they were losing profit that you know they wanted, um, and there was a chance for their power. Um, and so they commissioned uh, the creation of uh, they commissioned like. The invention of a, of a kind of automated machine that could make these these spinners redundant, um, 
basically that that was created um, and um, you know there were still workers needed at all sorts of levels but they were much less skilled um, and in the context of the, the crisis this was then used to um, okay I was going to read a little passage about that but anyway it was used very effectively to uh, kind of smash uh, worker power and unions power um, and you can see um, you can see a similar story for weaving and elsewhere but basically like so this had and this you know drove down wages and a lot um, so this, but this that in itself is mechanisation that doesn't necessarily require steam and in many cases it involved water not steam um, so that, that that's a partial answer to you know why this mechanisation came but then, but then the next question is like why um, why steam not water um, he demonstrates conclusively all the advantages of water in terms of conversion of energy they were about 85% efficient compared to two, between 2 and 4% coal um, obviously the energy was kind of free as well uh, a, I mean in a more direct sense with like less labour uh, required um, so he one of the things that he raises is something which has been raised as a kind of criticism of, of water power is is there reliability so you know when uh, you know in, in a drought or when the water, water freezes you're then kind of without without power and this was actually um, could have like largely been overcome through these these complex uh, reservoir systems um, which would have served like whole swathes of capitalists at once um, would have been significantly cheaper than coal um, you know would have been more reliable and so on um, and he looks at various different examples of proposed reservoir systems and basically they all collapsed because it involved really high level of cooperation between uh, the kind of manufacturers who were using would be using that water um, at a point in which they were kind of at each other's necks fighting to get lots of profit and the, the exact agreement about how it would work and who would get which water when and how, how you deal with people further downstream and upstream they just uh, couldn't agree on that so that wasn't yeah he gives lots of examples of basically schemes being torn apart on that basis um, however you know in itself capitalists could have just relocated to you know, had a little steam stream one place or another place. They could have, like all previous industries, you know, negotiated with the fact that water was, you know, sometimes not there. But he basically, he then looked at its, its advantages in space and in time. So the steam engine um, is, because it's, because you can move the coal to wherever you have the steam engine. You can place the steam engine wherever you want. You don't have to, whereas 
with water, you you know you have to place it in a place in which there's a running flow of water with the possibility of, of a kind of fall, um, at least in it, it yeah, um, and um, the advantage in terms I'm, I'm aware I'm kind of running short on on time and I haven't maybe paced it properly, so I'm going to kind of rush through a few of these things, but ask me if I go into more detail. Um, the um, by being paced in towns, um, yeah, they, they were freely mobile. This allowed them to be placed in towns. Um, towns were kind of had been newly growing, um, uh, which is you know associated with a kind of protocol of proto-fossil economy. Um, and this, the advantage of the towns basically was that it made available um, a kind of significantly larger pool of, of workers, of, of, kind of industrially trained and disciplined workers, people who had experience working in factories and, and the, what was, you know, at first much presented factory discipline. Um, and the you, there were enough of them to work in the factories, and that to be used as a, a like a reserve army of labour, as you know, a, a, as a force of uh, workers that could be brought in if there was a strike on, or the you know if they were could be brought in if the manufacturer decided they were all getting too big for their boots and should all be laid off. Um, towns provided a ready resource for that, whereas um, which is possible in, in a way with coal that it wasn't with water um, with water the two other solutions that, they, that they've gone for um, yeah, basically you know because water water's dynamic is kind of opposite in the sense that it's not just like specific places but you, you the ability to kind of concentrate it you can't concentrate it to the same degree it's he, he describes this as a kind of centrifugal dynamic, um, and uh, yeah, the the way they got by with water, you know, up to a point was um, using um, well, they they built kind of factory colonies, um, like a whole host of different like, cottages and so on, to attract labourers there. Um, and they used uh, basically like forced labour of orphan children um, and um, but which had both of them had disadvantages um, uh, basically because they were less easily, easily disciplined because they couldn't be thrown out of a place um, the other important facet here is, is time so um, the, the irregularity of water given that we don't have these reservoir systems needn't be an issue it, it, it isn't like a, a kind of concrete fact that that's a problem in earlier kind of economic setups um, in that period in which Water wheel, water wheel wasn't being used. 
people would work on something else instead. There was always plenty of other stuff to be done. Um, but the kind of the the structural crisis and the um, growth in kind of international export, you know, in part as part of the aiming to solve the structural crisis, meant that there was higher pressure on cotton producers to uh, produce high quantities and kind of regularly and to to kind of strict deadlines. Um, and so there were longer and longer days before about when there were issues with the river um, that became more of a problem. A part of part of the solution for a while was, you know, if the river wasn't usable for like the you know, for most of the day, you get the workers in afterwards and you just make them work most of the night instead. Or like, you know, more often yeah, various kind of like serious overtimes. But bas- basically, both of these problems became more significant um, because of the large growth of a kind of militant and, uh, and powerful working class movement um, in which, um, which, scared, which scared the ruling class. It, um, and it, as well as showing that kind of factory colonies were more vulnerable than other places, so um, there was a kind of bringing in of, of factory acts forced by this movement and and forced by kind of uh, the Chartist movement, which it, which it fed into, um, which restricted the possibility of overtime and kind of unlimited length of days and, and child labour and so on. Um, which particularly hit water because at that point then the drive was to get as much labour as possible out of you know a given time period in the day um, and coal because you could start and stop using it exactly when you wanted allowed you to kind of allowed them to kind of increase the intensity and the productivity uh, of that work in a way that that wasn't possible with water. Um, uh, he talks he's got some interesting stuff to say on ideology around steam um, I'm not going to go into that um, oh uh, one thing I forgot to say as a kind of premise early on um, is this is uh, this has got a kind of uh, companion book which isn't out yet which is called Called Fossil Empire, um, where he he'll, he says he, he'll basically look at the role of, of steam in kind of I guess of like locomotive steam in the sense of you know like in steamboats and other things for, for transportation and the role that plays it played in kind of like um, British imperialism and, and 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 through that the kind of the the, the spread of these things um, so. Um, but yeah, he doesn't talk about that in here. That is a significant factor, but you know, it, this independently enough gives a, an account. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, you can see, I, I've, give, I've given an account of some of the factors which kind of drove this um, transition um, and 
um, he, he, he documents it in much more detail and much more rigorously um, and you know in, in in all of the cases well in the case with the reservoirs that's the kind of limitation of a kind of limitation of the capitalist relations to um, do kind of very serious large scale um, cooperation um, uh, and but with most of the cases it was it was about it being used as a way to um, keep down workers um, yeah um, and he kind of he, he, he shows that this drove and like demand from the cotton industry in this case drove increased uh, kind of coal production not the other way around there weren't any in, in any of this period there weren't any significant steps forward in the technology of coal production or or in, in how that works it, it, it was just driven in that sense um, okay um, so I run over time um, uh, the, the bits I didn't talk about that I would like to talk about in the intro were about the kind of more general theory of capitalist relations and how fossil fuels comes into that uh, kind of yeah kind of general theory of fossil capital um, and then um, which is very powerful um, and then he looks at kind of nowadays and and kind of fossil capital internationally that nowadays the, the dynamics of that um, and kind of going from that to look at the kind of obstacles to a transition and you know what we need to well kind of touch on on, on the need to organise a serious movement to overcome them but I think I'll probably stop there and people can ask questions we can have a discussion and I if people I can come back to those those more those details uh, in a bit if people want okay we now have time for about 25 minutes of contributions from the floor and I'll bring back uh, Zach at the end take uh, Zach back, you've got about 10 minutes and have to be fairly strict on that. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, so in no particular order, um, Luke's criticism, Luke's criticism, um, so uh, yeah, he references the rate of profit, tendency of the rate of profit, profit to fall, which um, Martin thinks isn't true. I haven't read enough about it to have a qualified opinion on it, but in general, Martin is white on everything. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but no. Anyway, the the, the 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 point is is that he doesn't actually the 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 rate of the the tendency to the increase of fossil competition of capital doesn't hang on that. He hangs out on the fact like um, you know in, in, increased. 
which means basically, you know, it, with increased um, automation and increased productivity and so on, per unit of, like, you know, per unit of labour power per hour of work done, a greater amount of machinery is is used. But he doesn't. He 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 basically doesn't hand that on the rate of tendency. Well, it's called the tendency of the rate of the prop, of profit to fall, um, um, and his his arguments quite persuasive to me. Um, the thing you said about his kind of like, oh, we haven't got time to wait. Um, that was my biggest criticism of him. Uh, I think that rereading it later and then having an argument with Martin about it, um, I think. I was maybe a bit unfair, and how you phrase it was maybe a, a bit unfair. I feel that he's, attend- he's kind of saying that, but he's kind of also saying, like, you know, we have to do stuff here and now, which, you know, we also, like, we, we advocate stuff about the, like, you know, the green bands versus occupation and so on. It's like workers struggle, which is valuable even separate from its contribution to. Uh, you know, the revolutionary of third capitalism. Um, capitalism as a single progression. Now, I mean, I don't think he, he documents in much more detail than I had a chance to kind of talk about the kind of different processes and, and dynamics. Um, I think, you know, he, when he talks about fossil capital, as, as with Marx, you know, he, he identifies capital as a process. He's got a diagram. Start drawing it, and then I was like, "It's way too too much." Um, he he he's got a process there, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I I wouldn't say that that, that would be a a, a a fair criticism of him. Um, land, property rights, and water. Um, well, I mean, basically, so there was a reservoir built somewhere in Scotland. Um, uh, there were various schemes of, of reservoirs that were constructed. The schemes were, uh, but not, not implemented. And in all the cases, he documents quite well. Um, the main opposition came from manufacturers. Um, coal and oil. I think what um, Ed was saying is, is true, and I think he mentions that about oil. Um, you know, it was a, you know, this is, the, the, the move to steam from water was, as, as he kind of documents and, uh, and uh, so on, was like one of many cases in which, like, you know, a significant part of it is capital trying to outmaneuver labour, is, is ruling class trying to outmove, outmaneuver workers, um, but class struggle always follows it. Um, it moves on. The other thing, though, is it's not really the talk about the move from from oil to coal um, isn't is not really is not as true as it seems. So, like um, within within the UK, see you. Yeah. Um, within the UK, oh. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a transition there, but what he documents quite well is how, um, with kind of modern uh, capitalism, um, the kind of production gets moved around the world, 
um, based on the or based based on the kind of cheapness of of labour power, based on how low wages are, and also on some level of infrastructure being constructed. Um, a huge amount of that has, has now moved to China, in which coal is dominant. Coal is still one of the dominant things internationally. Um, um, and um, Okay, I'm going to have to not answer some of your things, sorry. Um, yeah, I mean, he talks about automation um, that links to... with, with aut- Automation is one of the other as well as kind of relocation um, and so on. It's one of the other way, you know, methods of attacking workers um, and the process of it, like, generally involves increased power and the increased efficiency of, of technology hasn't, like, undercut that increased power. And so tendency of automation is also a tendency towards increased carbon dioxide. Um, the thing about the work, the consistency of work, um, yes. Um, well, I mean, he talks about how water is like bet, makes better quality stuff. Um, about its stopping and starting, like there, you know, there are there are ways around it. He. he that was used at first, but with the factory acts, it became more difficult for them to stop and start, and also with wanting a certain regularity of output for a whole more complex production process, which was getting explored internationally. Um, like, just being like, oh, they work less, and we'll just make less cotton, to now was, was less of an option, as was, and, and, and just working through the night was no longer an option. Um, the so okay the colonial and, and post-colonial yeah so one of the significant things that I didn't talk about um, that is extremely valuable and another reason people should read about it is when he, he looks at fossil capital nowadays um, and he looks at kind of globally mobile capital and um, you know talks about how a lot you know China for example um, they're kind of Chinese reserve army of labour, the Chinese like unemployed people or people who can be brought into work, which keeps down the wages in China in many senses functions as a kind of international global reserve of labour because you know production gets moved from elsewhere to China in which it is based on not just coal power but as he as he documents places with lower wages tend to be uh, places with also um, less efficient technology so it's another contribution to kind of CO2 um, and uh, yeah he kind of documents how even like, like you know class struggle within China um, and the rising of wages within China over the last decade or so um, where class struggle has happened has made investors start looking into other places which have now started trying to kind of construct um, more infrastructure. Okay, so the final two things that I've got to wrap up. Um, surveillance, 
Um, so, I mean, he, he, I mean, he doesn't talk much about like surveillance in the in the kind of CCTV sense, um, but like a lot of this was like you know the move into factories. Some of that was about a lot of that was about surveillance and discipline. The kind of he talks about like the introduction of machines and the kind of increased automation of machines is about in the sense of machines disciplining the workers backed up by a kind of surveillance and discipline of the managers. Um, the I think he talks about the kind of disciplinary dis disciplinary kind of processes that you can get in within cities. Um, and uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of kind of stuff that can be picked out of that. I mean, also, he doesn't directly talk about it, but obviously part of why wages are low in China is a, like, brutally repressive state apparatus which uses a lot of suppression. Um, and yeah, my final point is um, I hope Pete, this is giving people enough of a taste that they think that I'm going to go and I'm going to buy and read this book or if I've already bought it and have it on my desk, I'm going to read it. I mean, if it hasn't, Come and talk to me afterwards and I'll, I'll have another shot persuading you. We run Ideas for Freedom every year. For more talks and discussions, come and join our now legendary annual socialist summer getaway above Hebden Bridge in West Yorkshire on the 8th to the 11th of August. This will be a long weekend of music, campfires, food, drink and socialist discussions, workshops, tree climbing and messing about in the great outdoors, open to all. More information and tickets from £20, including food, at workersliberty.org forward slash camp. <laughs>